Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, submissions are in full swing, and so far, we've received some truly terrible tales. Terrible in the best, most blood-soaked, spine-ripping, hair-raising sense of the word. But, as we start to plan this next season of Frightful Yarns, we'd also like to put out a call to all you would-be narrators out there. Tales to Terrify needs your voice to help bring these stories to dreadful life. If you've got a great reading voice, a quiet, echo-free spot in your home, and a microphone, we want to hear from you. Record a minute or two of yourself reading and send it to talestoterrify at gmail.com. It's a volunteer gig, but if you love reading horror, it's a great opportunity to share that passion out loud with your fellow listeners. That being said, this also seems like an opportune time to put out a quick plug for our Patreon. Since taking over Tales to Terrify back at the beginning of May, one of my most heartfelt goals has been to start paying our amazing narrators. A goal I hope will also help us continue to attract other great voices to read for us. We're a ways off from that yet, but with your support, I believe we can get there. If you love the stories you hear each week, we'd so appreciate if you'd be willing to help us out with even a few dollars each month. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and amazing bonus content that we'll be releasing later this summer. Just visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify, or if you'd rather, you can donate directly through PayPal by clicking the link on the bottom of our homepage. Every bit helps, and to those amazing listeners who already support us, there's really no thanks deep enough. All right, our house is in order. Let's hit the road, shall we?
This week finds us rolling into the state of Tennessee. It's a pretty diverse state, both geographically and in terms of attractions. From mountains and plains, forests and rivers, there's lots to explore. In fact, Tennessee owns the distinction of being home to the most caves in the United States. Well over 10,000 have been documented to date. Or, if nature's not your thing, Tennessee's also home to the Country Music Hall of Fame, the birthplace of that quintessential American spirit, Jack Daniels, and the home of Elvis Presley's Graceland Estate. But Tennessee holds the distinction of being home to something a little more nefarious, too. Given its serene, picturesque appearance and warm, welcoming nature, the town of White Bluff, Tennessee, is a picture-perfect example of that legendary southern hospitality. It's the kind of place you can't help but feel right at home. No doubt that's a similar sentiment to the one a particular young family felt when they first rolled into town in the early 1920s. Just outside of town, they found the perfect plot of land to build their home and put down solid roots. Nestled at the edge of a natural hollow, surrounded by tranquil, lush forest. It was far enough from the bustle and noise of the main town, but close enough for the young family to enjoy all the benefits of the community. After all, with seven kids, they'd need all the help they could get. The calm setting seemed just the place to make a new life for themselves. And at first it was. But it wasn't long before their calm, new life was horribly and unexpectedly shattered. It began with a strange feeling, a feeling that usually grew with the lengthening of shadows into twilight. A member of the family would be going about their regular activities outside of the house, chopping wood, picking vegetables from the garden for dinner, the usual sounds of the forest, the buzz of insects, chirping birds, and the tittering of squirrels and other small animals the sort of sounds you grow so accustomed to you hardly notice them. Until they stop. And suddenly, the forest all around is unnaturally still, with only the sound of the breeze softly stirring grasses and the papery scratch of leaves on bark. There was a nakedness to the silence, a vulnerability, as though something unseen was watching from the growing shadows of the trees. It would leave whoever was caught outside hurrying into the house, their chore abandoned. Once back inside, though, it was hard not to feel kind of silly. A fox had probably wandered too close to the house and spooked the other animals. Nothing to be that worried about. The family would finish their evening activities and eventually all head off to bed. Suddenly, They were jolted out of bed in the middle of the pitch-black night. It took a moment to get their bearings. Hours had passed, and they'd all been deeply asleep. And then it came again, unnaturally loud and clear in the stillness of the night. A shrill, female scream that stabbed shards of terror deep into the hearts of the children and parents. Even the family dogs, trained hunting dogs, seemed afraid of the sound. The family would sit huddled together throughout the night, afraid to do much more than breathe, 
far too startled to sleep. The children would cry for hours after the screaming ended, only feeling safe enough to fall back asleep when the orange light of dawn began to peek over the horizon. It began as an occasional terror in the middle of the night, but gradually grew in frequency and intensity. Finally, one night, in the midst of a particularly violent auditory assault, the father decided his family had put up with more than enough. Whatever this creature, this demon, was, he wouldn't let it torment his family any longer. Propelled by a red rage, he seized his rifle and stormed out the front of his house, the dogs running ahead at their master's command. The moon was bright, and he was able to pick his way through the trees. The forest was eerily silent for the moment, but he had a good idea of where the sound was coming, an idea that was confirmed moments later as the unearthly scream echoed from the ridge above the house. The dogs immediately ran off toward the sound, but as he followed them and began to climb, the two animals came tearing back down the rise toward home. The man, obviously shaken, was determined. He was going to end this once and for all. As he reached the top of the ridge, he stood for a moment, scanning the trees, bathed in silvery moonlight. It had to be up here. He'd heard it. All he had to do was wait for the scream, and he'd be able to spot its hiding place and put a bullet in it, finish this, and finally let his family get a good night's sleep. But when the creature howled again, daggers of dread knifed into the man's gut, and his blood turned to ice. The sound hadn't come from the trees in front of him. It hadn't come from on top of the ridge at all. It had come from behind him. It had come from home. And it sounded triumphant. In a state of shock and panic, he flew back down the rise and tore through the forest, headed back to the cabin where his family, his wife and seven children, were waiting patiently, nervously, for their father's return. But as he neared the cabin and saw the front door open, his worst fears rose like bile in the back of his throat. Inside the cabin were the savage remains of his family. Their safe haven turned to a charnel house of limbs and entrails. His wails of anguish, no doubt, were enough to rival even those of the creature. What exactly is the White Screamer, as the creatures come to be known? Well, that's up for debate. Some people maintain that it's a banshee, a wailing spirit from Irish folklore said to be a harbinger of death. But banshees, although terrifying, don't typically do harm themselves. They just predict it. Others have suggested it's a type of cryptid, a mythical yet very real creature. Some have gone so far as to suggest they've seen it, describing the white screamer as either a floating ball of white mist or even a large white mammal that walks on all fours. Regardless of what the white screamer actually is, its call 
is unmistakably chilling. A call that's still said to echo through the forests near White Bluff at night today. So, if you're wandering the Tennessee forests at night, don't be surprised to hear the bone-chilling sound of a woman screaming and crying from the forest. If I were you, though, I wouldn't stick around to see it for myself. All right, let's say we scare up some screams of our own. Our first story for the evening is a bite-sized tale from Eric Garling. Eric Garling isn't entirely sure how he got here. He sat down with a cider and a laptop. Thirty minutes and one intriguing writing prompt later, out came this story, fully formed. Eric lives in scenic Port Angeles, Washington, where he shares his home with one daughter named after a sorceress, another named after a frost giant, and a wife whom he pesters endlessly to complete the longer-form piece she started using the same writing prompt. Come on, Becky, does Naya even find a better temple? And what happens with the knife? Children of the Night, join me for Eric Garling's Interview with Michael Robert Hutton, Crossing Guard, a Tales to Terrify original. I wanted to be a dark lord, and I was given a temple, or at least a crosswalk. That's the same thing, right? I mean, Mr. Hickerson always says so. The crosswalk is your temple. Other than always being damp and smelling like stale saltines, Mr. Hickerson is pretty okay. You have to understand. No, listen. You have to. Being a crossing guard at Rittenhouse Elementary is a big deal. And not just to me, to everyone. Ever since I found out about the program in third grade, I knew I had to do it. Those slacks, that hat, that sash. What? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So being a crossing guard is a big deal. And I was the best we had. Cold days, wet days, Foggy days. Didn't matter. I was there, managing gaps. Hmm? Oh yeah, Mr. Hickerson says a good crossing guard doesn't stop cars. He manages the gaps between them. Spots them and kind of, like, I don't know, extends them? And I was good at it. Like I was saying, I found out about the program in the third grade, when I had Miss Crenshaw. I knew it would be a couple of years until I could do it, but I knew, knew I was gonna. She didn't think I could manage it. Too short, she said. Too temperamental. Whatever that means. But I ran straight home and made a stop paddle out of a big pizza box. And I practiced. I practiced non-stop. For almost two years. I practiced stopping mom and dad. I practiced stopping Hoover, he's our dog. I practiced stopping my little sister, Callie. Got so she wouldn't hardly cross the street without me there. Anyway, I practiced a lot. 
When Mr. Hickerson started taking applications this year, I was first in line. And I was best from the very first day. Even better than the sixth graders that already done it last year. Like I said, I was good at managing gaps. What? Kevin? Why do you want to hear about him? He wasn't a guard. Not with those big, stupid glasses. So what if we got in a fight? He rubbed mayo on my sash. On my sash. And I hate mayo. Just ask my mom. So, yeah, I pushed him. And yeah, he fell into the street. But there was a gap. He wasn't hurt. I made sure. But Miss Stinking Crenshaw didn't care. She told Mr. Hickerson. She made him take away my paddle and my sash. But I didn't need those to manage gaps. Not at all. Am I sorry about what happened to her after? Ha! No. She should have known better. All those times I spotted those gaps and extended them for her. She should have known. I could shrink them right down, too. That was Eric Garling's interview with Michael Robert Hutton, Crossing Guard, as read by yours truly. Link to my personal page is in the show notes. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our next story is the second of three Stoker Award nominees. Tonight's tale comes to us from Lee Murray. Lee Murray is a double Bram Stoker nominee and multi-award winning writer and editor. The author of the Tane McKenna adventure series and several novels for children, she is co-author of the Path of Ra supernatural crime noir series with Dan Raybarts and the editor of ten anthologies of dark fiction. Lee lives with her family in New Zealand, where she conjures up stories from her office overlooking a cow paddock. Listen with me to Lee Murray's Dead End Town, first published in Cthulhu Deep Down Under, 
Volume 2. Uncle Bradley grunts, his eyes open wide, his mouth going slack, his fat tongue lolling between purple lips. He lets out a gasp. I breathe through my mouth to block out the smell, not daring to gag. Moments pass, his weight pinning me to the sofa. Then he pushes away from me, his lips twisted in contempt. I glance down past the Salvation Army skirt bunched around my waist as he staggers backwards, a silvery cobweb still tethering me to him. It dribbles from between my legs, a hideous white tendril snaking across the dark orange sofa cushion where it seeps into the stitching. I close my eyes, so I don't have to see while he pulls up his trousers. His zip buzzes. Still, I don't move. Instead, I trace my fingertip over the scar on my lip, a pink welt extending from the corner of my mouth to my cheek. Uncle Bradley's backhand. Each time it reopens, it takes longer to heal. You really need to be more careful on that bike of yours, Kayla, my form tutor Miss Arnett had said. Like she even gives a shit. I haven't used my bike since the summer. In the kitchen, the fridge door opens, and there's the sigh of a beer tab. Now, pulling my knickers up and my skirt down, I tiptoe to the front door, push my feet into my gum boots grab my sweatshirt, and slip out. I take the back way, cutting through Henderson's paddocks to the forest. Henderson's dog barks when I pass, but I tell him to shut the fuck up and he stops. From there, I climb over the fence and head west towards the creek. Apart from the dog, no one sees me. I'm the only one who comes here. There's no track, so it's tricky to get to. The beech trees leaning on themselves the deeper I go. Their trunks squeaking where they meet above my head. The scratchy manuka making a grab for my clothes. I breathe deep. The air is tangy. A mix of lemon and moss. I push on through the scrub, the brushes crisscrossing the backs of my arms with tiny cuts and grazes, Little white lines that disappear if you lick them. Only I don't. Because when I get to the creek, I take off everything but my t-shirt and submerge myself in the water. The creek is shallow, barely coming to my knees, but sitting down with my back to the bank. The water swirls around my legs, 
rinsing Uncle Bradley's white rot off of me. In seconds, my limbs are numb and dimpled, the flesh tinged blue-green, like a decomposing orange. I sit there for as long as I can bear. As always, I slip down, letting the water submerge me, allowing it to close over my face, inquisitive tendrils seeking out my nose and mouth. It would be a relief to let it stifle me. I will myself to do it, but something always stops me. I got as far as my eyes once, but in the end, I was too chicken. My teeth are rattling, so I crawl out and get dressed. Then I hunker on the bank, my back to a periri tree, and my arms wrapped around my knees. It's getting dark, but I don't want to leave yet. I stuff my hands into my pockets, pull out my hand-powered torch, and squeeze it rhythmically. The torch is small, but it keeps the shadows from crowding in on me its friendly whirring playing bass to the trickling high notes of the water. In the treetops, the forest murmurs. Mumps people say it's the Patupayareje talking, the mischievous fairy creatures who live in the mists. The stories say they like to snatch little girls. They're like the Pied Piper, playing their flutes to lure people away. If it is the Patupayareje, Their words are soft and mournful, like poetry. I used to write poetry. Before. I've stopped now. Why is your writing always so dark, Kayla? Mrs. Arnott had said. For a woman of letters, she's pretty dense. Didn't you say that poetry is about self-expression? I replied. That doesn't mean you have to be so morbid, she said. What was I supposed to say to that? But she was right in a way, because Uncle Bradley kept recurring in my poems, and it was as if I was giving him that power. Although, maybe stopping was playing into his hands too, because I made myself even smaller. Some days... I think I'm crumbling into dust, like a statue left to weather, and getting rounder and blunter at the edges. Soon enough, I'll be smoothed away to nothing. I'm a miner, so I have to go home. I scramble to my feet and start back. The forest doesn't want me to leave either, gray-green manuka fronds grabbing at my sweatshirt as I scramble through the brush. I open the front door to yellow electric light and the stench of cigarette smoke. Back from her shift, Mom is lounging on the couch watching Game of Thrones with Uncle Bradley. Where have you been? Mom asks, leaning to her left to stub out her cigarette in the ashtray. Out, I reply. Over Mom's head, Uncle Bradley smirks. Out where? she asks. Just walking. She's been fucking that neighbor boy again, I reckon. 
Uncle Bradley says. I glare at him. If stairs were kitchen knives, his face would be pulp. Mum turns to him. You mean Aaron from up the road? Christy and Wallace's boy? She gives him a playful shove. He's harmless. Wouldn't even know where to put it. She giggles like the girls from school. Inside the pockets of my sweatshirt, I clench my fists. I'm off to bed, I say. I brought you some chips back from the shop. I'm not hungry, I snap, moving towards the hall. Hey, Bradley says. You get back here and say thank you to your mother. He stands up. Kayla. I stop. Well? I stare at a thin bit in the carpet, where the trample of too many feet have worn it to muddy threads. Thanks, I mumble. He points the remote at the TV, pausing it. You can say it like you fucking mean it, he snarls. Mum leans forward and puts a hand on Bradley's leg. It's fine, babe. She said she wasn't hungry. The chips will be cold now anyway. That girl is spoiled rotten, Leanne. After everything you do for her, the least the disrespectful little madam can do is say thank you. Come on, Bradley. She's just a teenager. She's a disgrace. Well, let's not let her attitude ruin our evening, shall we? Mom says, taking the remote from him and flicking her eyes towards the hall. My cue to bug off. I don't have to be asked twice. In my bedroom, I pull the lock across. I bought it from Hammer Hardware and put it in myself. Borrowed a hand drill and a screwdriver from the wood tech room at school. When he saw it, Uncle Bradley just laughed. Mom's whole life is a fantasy. Like thinking Uncle Bradley is the real deal. As if their relationship is something special. I squeeze my eyes closed and pull the duvet over my head, trying to get warm. The thing is, Mum really believes it. Maybe she thinks she's in love with him. Uncle Bradley's not like my other uncles. For starters, he's got a job at the sawmill. Shift work. Pretty decent money, too. Every now and again, he gives Mum some of his pay packet which makes her go all gushy with gratitude. Why do you have to make such a big deal about it? I said once. I mimicked her voice. You're so kind to think of us. So generous. Her eyes narrowed, and she grabbed me by my upper arm, pulling me into the bathroom where he couldn't hear. Well, he is generous. You try making ends meet on a benefit, Missy. Rent, food, electricity, your school fees, it all adds up. And he doesn't have to help. It's not like he's your dad or anything. 
That made me think about phoning Wins, because he's not supposed to stay here all the time, or she could lose her sole parent benefit. In the end, I didn't. It's not like it would have made a difference. Without Mum's benefit, there'd be no groceries. And anyway, everyone knows winds are as useless as tits on a bull. The TV is still blaring next door when I fall asleep. In the morning, I take the school bus and sit near the back with Aaron. Bags the window, he says, pushing ahead of me. Ours is a friendship of convenience. Every day we get on and off the bus at the same stop. Have done since I started school. When you wait in the rain and fog with someone day in and day out, you get to know things. For example, I know that Aaron is gay. And he knows about Uncle Bradley. Not the gory details, but the general gist. It's not as though Aaron can do anything about anything. But it'd been a relief to tell him. And have him believe me. Anyone ever tell you you look like shit? He says, when I slip in beside him. Twisting my backpack around until it's resting on my knees. Yeah. Someone was sick so Mom picked up an extra shift at the fish and chip shop. The bus roars, slowly picking up speed. Aaron nods. You okay? He asks. I stare down the aisle. I'm here, aren't I? He clutches at the straps of my backpack, leans closer, and whispers in my ear, We should go, Kayla. Leave here. We could take the bus to Auckland. His eyes are big and round and hopeful. And then what? I say. Get lost in the big smoke? It's all right for you. You're already 16. You forget I'm only 13. When you're 13, they glue your face to every milk bottle in every supermarket in the country. He rolls his eyes. And take out full-page ads calling for information about your whereabouts. Someone will start a Kickstarter. They'll call in a psychic. My mom will cry on TV. Aaron grins. Your mom would love that. I smile in spite of myself. <laughs> I know. Think about it, though, Kayla. You only have to survive two years. Auckland's big. I can help hide you. When you're 16, they can't make you come back. He won't be able to do anything. Two years and two months, I say, savoring the feel of the words in my mouth. So? It's not impossible. I think about leaving Mum and how much it would hurt her. Uncle Bradley was right when he said that everything she does, she does for me. Everything except see what I need her to see. I pleat the fabric of my skirt in my fingers and shake my head. If they find me and haul me back, 
Uncle Bradley will kill me. Now it's Aaron's turn to look out the window. His breath fogs the glass an instant, then disappears into nothing. When the bus has bunny-hopped over the potholes outside the skeleton's place, he turns to face me again. What about your father? He demands. What about him? Why can't you go and stay with him? He looks at me hard. Honestly, if he doesn't stop picking that pimple at the corner of his mouth, it'll never heal up. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Just ask him. I can't. Aaron stares at me like I'm the prime minister trying to evade a tricky question. Look, I have a father. Obviously. I just don't know who he is. Seriously, you don't know anything about him? I know he was a poet and a dreamer. Mom says he wasn't like other boys. He wasn't normal. His family wasn't from around here. I pause. What? Don't laugh. But she used to tell me the reason he couldn't stay with us because he was a patu pyrehe. Aaron scoffs anyway. <laughs> a fairy? A legendary creature from the forest? That's crazy. <laughs> I know, right? It is kind of sad. It's not like I'm a little kid who believes in fairy stories. But I like to think my dad was legit. That he had a real reason for not being with mum and me. Before I started school, I had this picture book of Cinderella. And in it there's a drawing of her meeting the prince in the forest. It's silly, I know. But back then I convinced myself that this prince was like my dad. And he was hiding in the forest. Just waiting for us to come and find him. The bus pulls into the bay outside the intermediate school. The doors sigh open, and we all pile out. Aaron stands up, shouldering his backpack. More likely, if your dad split, it's because he didn't want to pay child support. Yeah, I say. But my heart says something else. When we get off the bus in the afternoon, Uncle Bradley is waiting at the side of the road. He's never done that before. The back of my throat tightens. I jump down after Aaron, and the doors hiss. The bus pulls out, spitting gravel. Hello, Mr. Stearns. Kayla's coming to my place today, Aaron says. We've got an assignment. Uncle Bradley lifts his chin. Like hell she is. And who the fuck are you trying to kid? You're not even in the same class. The bus labors down the road. Watching it go, I realize we should have gotten back on. Too late now. Hitching my backpack up on my shoulder, I straighten my back. I'm going to errands, I say. It's all arranged. Mrs. Waugh invited me over for afternoon tea. 
Uncle Bradley cocks an eyebrow. So it's tea and cookies now, is it? I don't think so. Quick as ever, he steps forward and shoves Aaron full in the chest, sending him backwards into the road. Aaron stumbles, then recovers, moving off the road and onto the verge again. But now, Uncle Bradley's bulky body is wedged between us. Aaron drops his backpack on the gravel. In my head, I will him to go home. He stands his ground. This time, when Uncle Bradley shoves him, he springs back like a piece of fencing wire. I'll teach you for messing with my stepdaughter, Uncle Bradley roars. She's not your stepdaughter, and I'm not the one messing around with her, Aaron spits. No, don't let on, you know. He can't know, you know. I stare around Uncle Bradley at Aaron, praying for him to understand. Uncle Bradley draws a line in the gravel with his toe. You're right. She's a slut. There are probably half a dozen like you taking a turn with her behind the bike sheds. Bullshit! Aaron shrieks. And my stomach sinks. No! I shout. But already he's running at Uncle Bradley his head down like a wild boar on attack. Uncle Bradley dodges the charge with a neat sidestep. Twisting, he punches Aaron full in the stomach as he comes around again. Aaron doubles over, and Uncle Bradley lifts his knee, slamming it into his nose. Blood spurts all over Aaron's t-shirt. Stop it! I croak, my voice echoing over the paddocks. The sheep nearest to the fence skitter away. But Uncle Bradley rounds on Aaron, punching him in the guts a second time. Aaron goes down, hard. Run, Kayla! He chokes. His arms wrapped around his middle. Get away from here! You run, and I'll kill him. Uncle Bradley says quietly. I freeze. He's bluffing, Aaron says, getting to one knee, blood in his teeth. If he kills me, the police will come after him. Is that so? Uncle Bradley scoffs as he kicks out Aaron's knee. The action is swift and cruel, pushing Aaron back into the gravel. Uncle Bradley stoops, jamming his face close to Aaron's. I could kill you and walk away, and no one would even bat an eyelid. Not when I tell them how you've been fucking my stepdaughter, and when I called you out for it, you came at me. Except it's all lies. Uncle Bradley shrugs. Question of perspective, isn't it? Nobody will believe you, Aaron says but his face has turned as pale as butter. Of course they'll believe me. Uncle Bradley kicks him in the ribs with the toe of his boot. My cousin's the superintendent of the local police. Grinning, he stamps on Aaron's leg. Aaron whimpers. Like a hedgehog, he curls into a ball, 
his skinny arms crossed over his head. Uncle Bradley kicks him again and again. In his back, his stomach, his head. After a while, Aaron goes quiet. Please, I beg. Uncle Bradley gives him one more kick for good measure. Then, panting, he wipes his hands on his jeans. He turns on his heel, grabs me by the arm, and drags me back towards the house. I glance over my shoulder to where Aaron is a motionless lump on the side of the road and pray Uncle Bradley hasn't fractured his skull. Afterwards, when he's finished his business, I run back to the bus stop to look for Aaron. But he's gone. His backpack, too. I'm about to head up to his house when Mom turns into the driveway. If only she'd come home twenty minutes ago. Slowing the car, she slides down the window and calls to me. Kayla, where do you think you're going? I fold my arms across my chest. Nowhere. Well, what are you doing out here on the road? Just checking the mailbox, I improvise. It was empty. Mom gives me a suspicious look. Come inside, then. I bought some lamb chops for dinner. I look towards the Waz house and then trudge after the car, my gumboots scuffing in the gravel. Aaron doesn't come to school on Wednesday or on Thursday. When he doesn't come on Friday, I ride past our stop, get off at Cooper's Corner and walk back to Aaron's place. His mother opens the door. Kayla? Hello, Mrs. Waugh. Is Aaron okay? He hasn't been at school. You'd better come in, she says, opening the door wide. I take off my gumboots and follow her into the kitchen. It's only four o'clock, but the amber pendant above the dining table is already on. I take a seat. The Waugh's sheepdog pads over and I give him a scratch under his chin. Aaron's mother goes to the kitchen bench, where she's been cutting up a pumpkin. She picks up a knife and uses it to slice off the gray skin. What do you know about what happened on Wednesday? I shrug and ruffle the dog's ears. Someone beat Aaron up after school. He wouldn't say who. I had to take him to A&E. I pretend to be surprised. Is he okay? She slices the pumpkin and places the pieces in a pot. Yes, but he took the bus to Auckland first thing on Thursday. He's done with this place. His father and I weren't happy. But he's sixteen, seventeen in a week. So there wasn't much we could do about it. She stares at me hard. I want to tell her what really happened, but if I do, something bad will accidentally happen to Mum. Something bad could happen to Aaron's mum, too. Uncle Bradley knows where she lives, and Mr. Waugh spends a heap of time down the back of the farm. 
So I say, There are some kids at school. Yes, I know, she interrupts. Bullies. A dead-end town like this? Forcing people to pack up and leave just because they stepped to a different drum? She puts down the knife and sighs deeply. (sighs) It doesn't do to be different, does it? I shake my head. No. The dog nuzzles closer. I give him another pet. So, where is Aaron staying? Does he have an address? Mrs. Waugh scrubs away a tear with the back of her hand. He knows our number here at home. He'll call us if he needs anything. She gives me a piece of ginger crunch and a glass of Fanta. Before I leave, she says, You take care now, Kayla. Any trouble with those kids at school? You know you can always come to Mr. Wall and me. I know she doesn't really mean it. It's what people say to be polite. Like asking, how are things going? And not really caring about the answer. I smile and nod. If Aaron calls, please tell him I said hi. She rests a hand on my shoulder a moment. Of course. Aaron's dog follows me into the yard and down the driveway to the cattle grate. Go home, I tell him. His tail down, he heads back towards the house. Mom will be another hour, so I cut across the wall's paddocks, then cross Henderson's to get to the edge of the forest. Henderson's dog is barking its head off at something in the bushes. His ears are cocked, and the fur on the back of his neck is standing up. He doesn't even see me when I climb the fence. I step into the gloom. Today, I don't need the creek, so I wade to the other side and head further into the trees. It's windy. High up where the branches touch, the bark squeaks. Through the rustle of the leaves and the gurgle of the creek, I hear a flute or a clarinet playing somewhere up ahead. It's faint, but there, the melody wistful and eerie, like an Adele song, the kind that makes your heart ache. For a second, I think it might be Aaron. Maybe he hasn't gone to Auckland yet. Maybe he's stuck around to say goodbye or to take me with him. My heart racing, I speed up, plunging deeper into the beech trees, pushing aside the branches, grazing my hands on the bark. It's hard work, the wet ground sucking all the time at my gumboots. The mist rolls around me, cold on my muddy legs. Hello? Aaron? Three people step out of the trees. My heart stops in its tracks. I can hardly believe it. Hatu Payarehe. Tall and willowy, they have fair hair and brilliant diamond eyes. There are three of them, all dressed in skins. Kayla, they say, and I jump to hear their voices in my head. I hug my arms to my body, 
my boots sinking in the soft mud. You know my name? Their answer drifts toward me on gusts of wind. We've been waiting for you. The drawing of the prince from that old picture book flashes into my head, and I can hardly breathe. They've been waiting for me? I'm almost too scared to ask. Is my dad here? Yes. Yes. We know where. They whisper in my head. We can take you. Take me where? This way. Come. I follow them further into the forest, clambering over rotting logs and ducking under fronds. Up ahead, the Patupayarehe let the branches swing back and hit me. Hey! They giggle and smile. Well, they're known for being pranksters. I want to reach out and touch them. Only they dart forward on their long legs, keeping just out of reach. I hurried to catch them up. In the dim light, everything is shadowy and gray, and my gumboots slip in the mud. Arms out, I tumble into the ditch. My hands break my fall, pain flaring in the webbing. I bite back a cry. A sharp twig speared me when I tripped. I lift my palm to my mouth and suck away the blood. It's while I'm standing there, dealing with the cut, that I notice the barking. Somewhere in the distance, Henderson's dog is going apeshit. All at once, I realize how late it is. Behind me, the forest is so dark, the tree trunks are a blur. How did I even get this far? It's getting too dark. I'm going to need my torch, I tell the Patupayrehe. But when I take it out of my pocket, they melt into the trees. Hey, come back, I call. The forest groans about me, the shadows thick and dank. I don't know where to go, I say. The Patupayrehe don't answer. The days go by. A week. I hear nothing from Aaron. No letter. No phone call. Not a whisper. You only have to survive two years, he'd said that last Wednesday morning on the bus. He'd made it sound so easy. Now, with no one to talk to, those two years stretch out in front of me, like a dead-end road. I'm in the kitchen doing the dinner dishes when Mrs. Arnott calls my mother and tells her I'm getting behind in my schoolwork. What's this all about? Mom asks when she gets off the phone. It'll be because that boyfriend of hers shot through. Uncle Bradley calls from the living room where he's watching the telly. I imagine his smug look and wish I could stuff the kitchen brush down his throat. Is that it? Mom asks. Is this about Aaron? I guess so, I say. And it's not entirely a lie. <laughs> 
Since Aaron left, I've lost a lot of weight. I've had to put a safety pin in the waistband of my skirt. And lately I've been forgetting things. It's as if my brain's been getting blunter, worn down like a pencil. The school makes me see a counselor. With scraggly hair and big-rimmed glasses, she looks like Professor Trelawney and asks me the usual things about what I want to do when I leave school and if my falling grades have anything to do with the kids at school. I tell her no. And what about things at home? She asks. They're okay. Just okay? Through the glasses, her cheeks are an odd shape. I shrug. It's all right. It's just you and your mum at home, right? Mm hmm. I don't mention Uncle Bradley. I can't. I can't mention him or something bad will happen to mum. Only, the counselor must catch me pause because she says, You know, anything you tell me is confidential, don't you? That means it's just between you and me. You can't tell anyone? That's right. Like a priest? Exactly. I suck in a breath. Maybe I could tell her. Not because she can do anything, but just be able to tell someone in the way I told Aaron. Someone who's not going to pick a fight with Uncle Bradley and get herself beaten up and left on the side of the road. The knowledge makes me feel strangely light, like an old candy wrapper carried along by the wind. I'm opening my mouth to tell her when she goes on. That's how this works. Unless you're at immediate risk, nothing you say here will get past me. My shoulders slump. Unless you're at immediate risk. Which means her lips will be flappier than a sheet on a washing line. The school makes me go see her a few more times. But each time I clamp my mouth shut. And after a while, they give up. Another day, I'm heading for the creek, when I find Henderson's dog lying up beside the fence, rolled over on its back like it's expecting someone to rub its stomach. The dog's ribs stick out under its ragged fur. Its head is lolled to one side, its tongue sagging from its mouth, covered in mucus. Looks like it ate some possum poison. Mr. Henderson must have left it here to bury away from the livestock. The flies haven't wasted any time getting into the carcass. Thick white filaments lick out from behind the dog's eyes. I've seen maggots that got into a lamb once. Aaron and I found the wretched little thing in a ditch. It'd been dead a while because the maggots had eaten the entire body from the inside out. Its skin undulated in waves. It was so full of the fat white worms. It was disgusting. Hopefully Mr. Henderson will come back and bury the dog soon. Poor thing. He barked a lot, but he was a good dog. Backing away from the carcass, I swing my leg over the fence. <laughs>
Mom's in the bath for one of her long soaks when Uncle Bradley gets me up against the kitchen sink, his hand pressed against my mouth. I'd let my guard down. Mom was home, so I thought I was safe. He hisses in my ear to keep quiet while he fumbles behind me. The water goes off, but Uncle Bradley doesn't stop. Mom's soaks can take a while. I see the butter knife lying on the bench. Slowly I move my hand, closing my fingers around it. Suddenly, Mom comes out of the bathroom, her bathrobe wrapped around her, heading for the linen cupboard. Silly, I forgot to get a towel. She stops, spying us through the kitchen. What the hell? Hidden from her by the bench, Uncle Bradley flips up his track pants, flicks down my skirt, and steps to one side. I had to pin the little bitch down. She tried to attack me with a knife. I shudder. The butter knife is still clutched in my fist. Kayla? What's going on? I stand up, my eyes pricking. I told you. Uncle Bradley roars. You wouldn't listen. The kid has abandonment issues. Her daddy's not here, and she's got it in her head that it's my fault. Shut up, Mom says, pushing past him to get to me. Mom, I say, warm tears welling. Gently, she takes the knife from me and drops it in the sink. A hand on each of my upper arms, she fixes me in the eye. Look, Kayla, honey, I know things are bad for you right now. I get that. Aaron leaving has brought up some things about your dad. But you have to understand, it has nothing, nothing to do with Bradley. I just want him to go, I whisper. Uncle Bradley snorts. <laughs> what did I tell you? That kid is all kinds of crazy. Ever since I got here, she's had it in for me. Bradley, would you mind giving me a minute with my daughter? Sure, no problem. See if you can talk some sense into her. He grabs his cigarettes and goes outside, but not without giving me a look. Sweetheart, Mom says, wrapping her arms around me. This has to stop. You can't go around lashing out at the world, or people really are going to think you're mad. I try to tell her that wasn't like that, but she has to learn it for herself. It's like in Beauty and the Beast, where Belle has to choose to love the Beast if she's going to rescue everyone from the witch's curse. If I tell her the truth about Uncle Bradley, it won't count. Mom, please, just make him go, I gibber. But she doesn't hear me, and after a while, I can't hear her either. The next day, I don't go home. Instead, I get off the bus and go straight to the forest. 
Mr. Henderson must have come and buried the dog because there's no sign of it by the fence. I tuck my school backpack into a hollow where no one will see it, stamp my feet into the gaps in the wire, and climb the fence. I suck in a breath, inhaling the ripe smell of soil and leaves. The lush of the trees beckons me in. I have to go a long way into the brush to find the Patupairehe. I hear their music at the creek, but it's an hour before I see them. They hang back, lurking in the trees, laughing. I've come to see my father, I tell them. Yes, yes, we can take you to the place. They urge me forward, flitting in and out between the tree trunks. I follow them further into the forest. After another hour, I glance backwards. The forest is dense black. It closes about me. This time I've got no light to hold back the shadows. I'm wearing my school polo and the torch is in my sweatshirt. Maybe I should turn back. Go home. But which way do I go? If I'm going to get back to the creek, the Patupayarehe will have to guide me. They are the faintest silhouettes now. I feel my way forward, sensing them in the soft squelch of mud and the brush of the branches. Hey, slow down. Out of reach, the mischievous fairies giggle like I've made a joke. We keep going. Finally, the trees part. Before us, moonlight glints off a limestone cliff. A dead end. Looks like we'll have to go back. But the Patupayarehe point upwards and smile. I look up. Above us is an earthy overhang, the roots of a massive tree tangled and coiled in its underbelly. Something's moving up there. I squint as spindly white vines spool from a slit between the roots, creeping outwards and waving to me the breeze. My father came here? The vines sway and undulate like the maggots in the lamb, disgusting but fascinating at the same time. Mesmerized, I watch the glutinous tendrils slide from the recess and curl towards me. Halfway, they strike out a million barbed threads, grabbing me and pulling me upwards. No, this isn't right. Why did they bring me here? This isn't where we're supposed to be. The Patu Pyarehe reply, Yes, yes, we're here. We're here. But all I see is the fleshy curtain opening. A beak. And slithering from its yawning depths, a slick white tongue. I thrash and kick, the cords only tighten around me, the barbs digging deeper, lifting me up to meet that beak. Help me, I wail. The Patu Pyarehe shrink back into the trees. Gray slime drops from the beak. It seeps into my clothes, burning them away, searing my skin.
I scream. A stinging acid gob falls into my right eye. With one sightless eye, I'm paralyzed. Helpless. I can only stare in horror as the beak drops further and further, its tongue rolling outwards to meet me. And all the while I'm rising, the vines holding me so tight I can barely tremble. More foul mucus gushes from the beak, the oily slime smothering my face and ruining my eye. It's a relief not to see it close over my face. My nose is left free. I breathe in bubbles of vile mucus and scream and scream into its insides, the sound going nowhere. We're here, the Patupaya Rehe croon. Yes, we're here. And it's feeding on me. Its white coils reaching into my body, their barbed tips sinking through my skin to slurp up my insides. The pain is searing white and endlessly slow. I can do nothing but endure it. I lay suspended and delirious while its ropey branches snake through my limbs, lifting my fingernails and burrowing into my bones. For the first time in forever, I wish I'd gone home. That was Lee Murray's Dead End Town, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family, when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you like what you heard, we'd love it if you'd head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we infect your mind with more Tales to Terrify.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.